Istanbul 74 presents the 74 podcast. You can now listen to a series of conversations between some of the world's most talented and creative minds, including talks from the IST Arts and Culture Festival. First of all, welcome to Istanbul. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Alfan. Thanks everyone for coming and like it's been really back to back, right? We're coming straight on after um, that really great interview with Sylvia, but Like honestly, if anyone feels like they want to get up, go to the toilet, have a coffee, get some tea while I'm talking, while this is going on, Including break me? the fucking rules, go and do it. I'm super chilled. I don't give a fuck. Honestly, do it. Including me? No, you have to stay. <laughs> no, that's the only. That's the only deal. Okay. By the way, Sylvia Fendi, that was so inspiring, and yeah. and she just touched on the fourth dimension. That was so exciting. Yeah. She doesn't just think about things in three dimensions, but four dimensions. I want to talk to her about that afterwards. Cool. That sounded really Maybe great. Maybe you should do. You should interview me. <laughs> You're better than me. Uh. No, but you've brought together such amazing people. I mean, that was a great panel. We got great people speaking later today, tomorrow. It's incredible. All these rule breakers, people that want to like, you know, are inventing new futures. That are innovators. I mean, this is a fantastic fucking festival. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. We should I'm write so this humbled. down I'm proud in to our be a book. That's it. really good. Am. Great. I mean, uh, I just want to make a very quick intro for. Those of you who don't know Jefferson Hack that well, uh, he's the creator of one of the most influential magazines of the 90s, and so to speak, which has become uh, the voice of a youth culture in the 90s, dazed and confused. And of course, you went on with equally successful magazines. You formed another magazine, another man, and also you uh, you're the author of the newly published book. Uh, We can't do this alone which came out earlier this year, and it's within the coincidence with the 25th anniversary of Dazed and Confused. And it's really an amazing book. I would highly recommend it. It's very inspiring, and it's an extraordinary book about publishing, creativity, and collaboration. And it's part retrospective, part manifesto, and it almost feels like an ongoing work. And um, how did the idea how what was the starting point for the book first of all i'm still kind of swimming in in the glory of my biography that you just read out which makes me feel um like i'm really successful because you used that word like four times in introducing me and it really like i it depends what you mean by success right like none of my publications have been like the most selling successfully selling. Oh, a success meaning a voice of a generation and representing a certain era and time in arts and culture But I love that word, and I love the idea of redefining it or reowning it because for me, it's really. It, it, I'm just really amazed that they're still going. You know, like days to confuse. I'm just so proud that it still exists, and it's successful for me because it's independent, and we're still independent, and we haven't sold out to anyone or, you know, had to exchange our values in order to survive. Yeah. And um, that, for me, is the success of those projects, so for real. But I mean. Uh I know you always uh, cherish the idea of being independent, but what's also like uh, the pros and cons of being an independent uh, company and running this huge organization and you know managing this amount of people? You're poor. <laughs> That's the truth of it. But you get the freedom. Is there a moment when do you wish own, I just want to sell it, 
bought out by a big corporation and just not deal with the financial part, the numbers and everything? No, never. 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 Because you're your own boss, you know, and you own your own voice and you have your own, you know, you're, 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 you're able to define your own destiny. And anyway, you know, it's like it's not, it's not all mine. It's really the people that work for it define it. So they have to feel like they're a part of something that is, um, uh, you know, a reflection of their ethos and, I and ideology. Mm -hmm. And so the minute I think about kind of trading that out for some kind of safety or some kind of comfort, then the whole essence of it starts changing. And, you know, magazines are about people. I think it was Dave, I remember interviewing David Bowie and he said to me, the minute an artist um, feels safe, it's time to move on, right? So the minute you feel comfortable, move on, because it's the most unnatural emotion for an artist to be comfortable. Yeah. And I think that applies to, you know, an independent magazine the culture of an independent magazine. It's the same ideology. It's the minute you feel safe, move on. Don't put yourself in a safe spot yeah. because you're not going to be doing anything useful. You know, you're not going to be doing anything um, that's challenging anybody. No. You're just going to be luxuriating in your own success, which is like the downfall. Of an artist. Of an artist, of a creative organization, of a company, of, of anything. Of a human being. Society. Society. Yeah. And this is also like, uh, can we say, like, this is also like the starting point or the idea for the book in a way? I mean, what does We Can't Do This Alone stand for? Um, the We stands for collaboration. Um, it, it's about anti authorship. So the book is. The book which just came out, and we got some copies in, um, in in the bookstore. So if anyone wants to flick through it, you can. If you want to buy it, I'll sign it. Um, if you just want to read it, it's a beautiful room. It's got natural light in it, so it's really, really you know, pleasant to be in. Um, the book, the we stands for, you know, the book is about kind of it's it's not about me. It's about community. It's not about the past. It's about the future. Um, I'm looking at my archive as a way of talking, uh, I'm connecting the dots between all the artists and the projects that I've worked on to have a look at what some of the kind of core philosophies are that made, that, that link everybody, that link this kind of spirit of, um, the spirit of this festival, very much what I talked about earlier, which is what is rule breaking? What is challenging the system? What is, um, what is the system itself that's being challenged? What are the ideas about how to progress culture forward. You know, for me, I've always surrounded myself with artists, Days to Confuse, another magazine, all the projects that I've been involved in have been kind of showcases, if you like, for other people's voices. So for me, I'm just a messenger, right? I'm just a carrier of ideas. A magazine is a container of information. It's a, it's a, it's a vehicle through which ideas are communicated. And the artists that um, are projected through those, you know, and I'm talking about artists in the wider sense of the word. So we're talking about photographers, fashion designers, architects, Author. musicians, filmmakers, you know, authors. Um, those artists that are being projected through, through those publications are really, for me, helping us step into future realities. They're writing future narratives. Um, they are dreamers. 
but they're also creating new paradigms through which we view culture and society. There was, I started this book with this quote from Allen Ginsberg from 1968, and he goes, we're living in science fiction now. Those that control the images, those that control the language, control the race. And he was talking about a psychic warfare in media. You know, what I do is I make media, and I analyze media, and I look at how media works. And there's a mainstream media that are the thought police. They're controlling the way you think about culture. And it's fucking manipulative. Yeah. And we're constantly being manipulated. And do and you, you, you think it was And it's for good or bad. Do you know what I mean? Those that control the images, those that control the language, and language is really important as well, control the race. Yeah. This is, these are Allen Ginsberg's words, 1968. They're not my words. And you think it was he like was that right when on, you man. started? He was right on. He was right he on. He was yeah. right on, brother. <laughs> and I know you also have a huge affection to the 60s, late 60s culture. And, and I love all of that. Malcolm McLaren was kind of my quasi-manager, you know, like the manager of the Sex Pistols, yeah. the guy that was at the you know, birth of kind of like hip-hop, um, the guy that, you know, was the birth of new romantics, birth of every kind of youth subculture. Also fashion, the punk Fa fashion. Fashion and punk. Um, you know, took the slogan from the streets of May 68, be reasonable, demand the impossible, yeah. put it onto his fashion. You know, and I, and But I do you I think I he was a part of that 68 generation? Or did he just took that idea and transformed it into a product? Both. Both. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting. He's a, he's, you know, a man of paradox and a man of contradiction. And I think Days to Confuse kind of stood for that. But what, what he said to me was really interesting. You know, he said a couple of things. One is it's better to be a flamboyant failure than a benign success. Mm -hmm. That's always stuck with me. You know, the idea of being successful and boring is kind of like the, that's the kind of enemy of thought for me. You know, it's like John Baldessari said, no more boring art. Right? No more boring art, no more boring magazines, no more boring anything. Let's shake it up, be provocative. The idea of provocation, the idea of, you know, the energy of that. What is provoking today? What do you think would provoke the readers, the magazine readers, or the youth culture in general? I think there was a tendency in the 90s, you know, when I started to kind of like shock for shock's sake, and I think that you know, there's the, the ideology that's interesting for me now is about looking at artists that are, artists, filmmakers, writers that are politicized in their work. Um, there is a huge pro-diversity movement out there. It's massive, I mean, you see it. Is it technology related? It's everything related. So we're talking about, you know, gender diversity. We're talking about the idea of, you know, the idea of um, techno diversity. We're talking about d the DNA of the body as the, as, as the sort of next autonomous playground for the invention of self, right? When we can start manipulate, well, you know, and, and people, the, the post human idea has been around for a long time with the kind of idea of being able to manipulate our bodies. And now taking that onto a cellular or onto the level of DLA is a huge ethical, a huge ethical area of, uh, you know, of, of debate, biomimicry, stuff like that. It's like, that's the, f the next magazine might even be on in, in within DNA. That's a sort of a wacky concept, but I'm working on it. Yeah. And uh, talking about magazines and journalism, um, the I recently saw on an interview with great documentary filmmaker uh, Errol Morris, uh, he said, uh, journalism has to be investigative, otherwise it's going to be just gossip. 
And yeah, I mean, that's a crisis at the moment. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, the, a true democracy, you know, if there's going to be any self-investigation, it's the investigative journalists that are going to hold the democracy to account. And when you've got newsrooms, you know, laying off, you know, journalists, hundreds and hundreds of journalists, um, because they can't afford investigative writers, because it's the most expensive part yeah. of a media organization is to have people on staff for a long period of time investigating things that, you know, uh, corruption, essentially. Um, you know, they can't afford it anymore. So it's... But can it's coming. It's, 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 it's come out of the culture as a as a uh, this kind of self investigation has come out of the culture. But how would you define investigative journalism in arts and culture in an arts and culture magazine? What would because well, that's different. I mean, I'm talking about news yeah. journalism, yeah. and I'm, I think he was as well. But um, you know, what I do is you know I think longer form longer form journalism, um, the kind of New Yorker style profiles where they really go into depth on talking about an artist's you know, ideas, career, um, the kind of things that I tried to do in another magazine. When I, when, I, when, I, when I launched another, it was about kind of doing something on a biannual frequency, zooming in, about spending more time on stories, less stories, more space, um, spending six months, a year even, reporting on, 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 on an artist or working with an artist on, doing, on, on, on representing them. But, you know, um, those things are expensive, they're costly. Um, that's not the predominant culture. Predominant culture is high speed, quick turnaround. I mean, you know, uh, cut and paste journalism. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, uh, there you go to a magazine store and there are tons of magazines. And if you look at it, most of it are 80% visual magazines and there is no uh, text in the magazine. And even the existing text is nothing interesting for the reader. You can just go online and go to Wikipedia or do your own research and you get this information anyway about the artists, about their work. Yeah, I wouldn't hold up Wikipedia as being the sort of paradigm of um, truthful journalism. Of course, I mean, of it's full of errors. It's, full, it's a great project. I mean, it's a fantastic project. But even Jimmy Wales, who invented Wikipedia, would say that it was a flawed, utopic idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not a freedom fighter for journalism. Um, I think I can talk about it if you want me to, but, you know, my work is more in the arts and culture space. I make magazines, I do other kinds of... But in of a journalist co context, if you Of course, and, yeah. you know, there's, 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 I think there's a responsibility, and as some, you know, I think making magazines and working with journalists, we always look at kind of the origin of the story, the source, the... The credibility, the credibility of the of you know of the of the information, the fact checking, making sure that the stuff we're putting out is going to you know be the truth and is going to be um, is going to stand up to criticism. Mm -hmm. I think that's the you know and is and is and is if it is criticism is criticism in 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 a way that is. Um, looking at the work and not necessarily critiquing the individual. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a critique of the personality, it's a critique of someone's work. Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm talking about this uh, subject is because there are some amazing interviews, very creative interviews, in which are featured in the book, like um, uh, a, f a short road story with Scarlett oh. Johansson oh, that yeah. never happened. Oh, yeah, because um, yeah, I forgot you sort of wanted to talk about me then for a minute. and. Um, <laughs> And um, 
I always, you know, I, I started as a journalist and I always hated journalism, you know, because I always felt it was so fake, the representation of, you know, you spend an hour with someone and then you've got to kind of write up a story about who that person is and what their thoughts are and what their ideas based on an hour of, of conversation with them. And that kind of, you know, was, I remember first meeting Tom York and, and we were sitting in a bar um, next to the office of Days Confused and he goes, you know, I don't, I don't feel like doing an interview. I fucking hate interviews. I hate the media. I hate, hate the way that they represent me and my band. And um, I said to him, oh, shit, um, this isn't, I just, you know, it just wasn't going very well. Um, and I'd read a, a self-interview that Truman Capote had done where it's actually brilliant and you, you might be able to find it online, but Truman Capote authored an interview with himself um, and it was published in a book of short stories. And so I found that book and I gave it to Tom and I said, look, have a look at this. And he said, wow, that's fucking amazing. And I said, yeah, it's great, isn't it? He's a, he's a really amazing writer. So obviously Tom Wolfe could create that in a way. And I said, do you think you might be able to do that? And he said, well, I'll give it a go. And then a month later, I got a C90 cassette tape through the post, opened it up, I put it on the cassette machine, I pressed play, Tom York's voice in a recording studio comes over through my speakers and says, you're the asshole that makes me fancy other women. <laughs> voice two, yeah, why don't you go fuck yourself? Voice three, you know, and he starts this interior dialogue between the different voices in his mind that end up becoming a kind of a singular voice after he smashes about two bottles of red wine through the 90 minutes of interview. And it's great. And he gave me that, and I transcribed it, and then obviously we edited it together, so there was an element of kind of control that he still had. Um, but it was his, it was our way of kind of undoing an, a non-interview or undoing the interview, which has kind of been the premise of what I've always done ever since, which is how to undo the construct, how to break that system, how to kind of, how to unfake it and work with different artists to create what Hans Ulrich de Briscoe calls a post-symbolic interview. Mm -hmm. And it's now kind of like, I guess it's quite normal now, like a lot of people do it. Like self-interviews? Not that, I mean like different things, like for Scarlett Johansson for instance, which is in the book, yeah. like I was just so sick of celebrity interviews, right? Like how many times have we, have we read about like a Hollywood star, you know, what, you know, in a puff piece about Hollywood star where they don't reveal fuck all about what their, what their lives are and, and what they're thinking and, and maybe they're not interesting enough to reveal anything about their lives or what, or, or what they're thinking and that's why they're There's so, a brilliant why piece they're that so that's why they're so boring. Or it's because of the power structure around it, which we all know is incredibly controlled by the Hollywood machine. And so what we wanted to do was kind of subvert that. Um, and I got A.M. Holmes, who's an amazing short story writer, a kind of a master of the short story format. And, she, and I said, do you think you can write a fictional piece about Scarlett Johansson and we'll just pretend it's real? Because what's the fucking difference anyway? It's all fiction. Like every piece of journalism is a work of fiction because it's the interpretation of the author, which is the journalist. There's no difference between reality and fiction anyway in magazines, very little. They pretend to be, but they're really like... So you a think Sylvia it's a Fendi fictitious format? Everything's fictitious. You know, our brains are like a highly developed VR machine. So, you know, we're living in kind of a suspended fake real world anyway. The minute you turn on your phone, you look at the screen, you're in virtual reality in a way, right? Or you're halfway there. Um, 
but yeah, so she wrote this amazing short story about um, Scarlett Johansson, where they, where you know, they 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 have sex in the story, they make out, they go to a bar, she gets on stage, she starts dancing with the cowboy band, all of this stuff, and you're reading it as a as a reader, and you're going, "Fuck, this is unbelievable! This is cray cray! This is off the charts!" And then at the end, it goes, "It was a work of it was a work of short fiction," and then. It, you know, you kind of realize, like, huh, I believe that. Or I and it was so it. fucking outrageous. Yeah. I believe that. I wanted to believe. You know, it's an Orson Welles, it's the Orson Welles idea. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. People sure. believe what they fucking want to believe, no yeah. matter how fucking crazy it is. Yeah. If the cultural conditions support the idea enough. Yeah. And we're living in extreme times. You know, it's amazing to be in Istanbul at the moment. You know, it's a, it, I haven't been here since the, you know, since the... Um, since the Syrian war conflict broke out, since you know the the, the issue with migration, I read in the newspaper um, today that 880 people, migrants, died in one week crossing over to Greece. Yeah. 880 in one week. That is fucking shocking. That breaks my heart. And it's like we're living in the most amazing times, and we're living in the most frightening times. Yeah. Right, and the most amazing times because we have incredible power. We have, you know, we have um, information. We have the power of information. We have lightning speed technology. Mm -hmm. You know, we have some of the greatest minds of our planet. Uh, you know, to help solve problems. But the most frightening thing is that things are getting more extreme with, you know, war, with politics, with race, with right wing rise, the rise of the right wing. So. It's that paradox, you know, we feel powerful, but we feel completely, you know, completely unable to do anything about it. Yeah. So it's interesting to be here, it's interesting to be here and talk, you know, and, and feel the energy of you bringing together artists and thinkers for cultural exchange, you know, and also to be back in the city and, 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 and see, and, and be at the kind of epicenter of, 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 of a geopolitical, you know, map which the world is looking at and trying to understand and trying to figure out what the fuck is coming down what is going to happen next and what what do you think what's going to happen next i have no idea you have no idea you know. but i mean uh, looking it doesn't look it doesn't look good though does it i mean no. it doesn't look no. like whoa you know there's no solutions right now it just looks like it's gonna get messier and messier and messier and i think what's interesting is that artists are taking that into their work and they're reflecting that in their work and it's being talked about and it's being somehow you know channeled in our, in our lives yeah and i mean uh, like looking back in the 60s that that was very very interesting times at the end it's like you can call like togetherness uh, triumphs over individualism and looking now uh, with all this uh, social media and everything how would you say, are the societies becoming more individualistic or with this Facebook, Internet, uh, Instagram, are we becoming more together? Is it bringing the society, the culture, everything more together? I think, um, you know, people feel um, more and more connected, but yet they're more and more isolated at the same time. So it's a weird paradox, it's a you weird know. Paradox. Um, and um, the atomization of the individual, you know, this hyper-individualization um, really creates an amazing sense of loneliness. Um, and 
an incredible narcissism, an incredible narcissism. It's all about me, 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 self, 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 self. self. Yeah. And the machine is gamed, you know, it's a gamified machine. It's like, you know, those social media channels, they're not really the internet. You know, the internet is, you know, it's, it, these, are, these are privately owned, you know, constructed, controlled, kind of controlled casinos, right? Which are engineered to give you rewards. And those rewards are based on how much you feed the machine. And if you feed it in the right way, you win back points, you win followers. You know, yeah. you get back yeah. a kind of like... And what's the you jackpot? Get back, you get back a kind of little kick, right? When like that happens, it's like getting three fucking like little, little, yeah. little cherries in a row. Yeah. Bang! And then you get a little reward, you get some more credit and you can play a little bit more. And everyone's like on the fucking casino, karaoke of culture, right? And um, that's what's happening. You know, it's like Facebook is... 1.65 billion people, right? That is more than the combined population of America and China. Yeah. It is a nation in itself, right? It's a virtual nation, uncontrolled by the laws of democracy, owned by one guy who's more powerful, who's more powerful than fucking like uh, Obama, or, <laughs> or 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 you know when when, you know, the, the Roman Empire held Constantinople. Yeah, <laughs> probably, <laughs> um, most likely. Maybe not quite as decadent no. um, in his own personal, you know, um, uh, way of dealing with things, or well, maybe we don't know. But, um, you know, it's incredible. You know, Silicon Valley has an incredible amount of wealth, probably only akin to kind of Putin, I think. Um, but, you know, these are the things you become aware of as you kind of look under the surface. And I think there's a new generation. There's an, I, I have a lot of hope, you know. My kind of message is really about a kind of, of punk positivism. It's like, you know, I don't... In the 70s, well, you talked about the 60s and you talked about the ideology of that and there was a lot of failed utopia in the 60s and 70s and we have to learn from this idea of like smash the system and replace it with a new system. Because the new system becomes as corrupt as the system that went before it. Uh, right? And that's what you see. You see this kind of like amazing idea of kind of, you know, utopic dreams that failed. Loads of failed utopias. The 70s littered with failed utopias, right? So what does that mean for today? Well, the idea is that you don't just smash the system. It's not tune in, turn on, drop out, as Timothy Leary said, right? It's tune on, tune in, turn on, take action, and make a fucking difference. Yeah. That's that's what the new generation today is saying, and that's why I get really inspired by young activists and, you know, the kind of energy of people that are active, maybe on social media but are taking that into the real world and are active, engaged in the real world, making a fucking difference um, through their creativity, through their, through their passion, by bringing people together. And, you know, that idea of hacking the system, which is kind of in the book, is like, it's, yes, it's fucking broken. Yes, it doesn't work. But don't just stare at it and go, that's fucking broken. I hate that. Do something about it. Get involved. Fix it. You know, there is a, there, there, there's an e evolve the system, and that's what hackers do. Hackers go in and they reroute systems, they rewire systems, and they short-circuit them to get better results out of them. So it's about constant iteration. You know, I still believe in democracy. Right? I believe in democracy because you know why? It means that everybody gets a count. Everybody in that state or in that circle of democracy gets a choice. So I'm pro-choice. Right? Yeah. I want to live in a democracy. But I don't want to live in a democracy 
that is flawed. I want to live in one that's worth. How does that happen? Right? And How what can we do about it? It needs to change. There needs to be regulation. There needs to be this kind of like involvement of people in the democracy. You can't just have one and then sit on the sidelines and go all day long. Yeah. So basically, from what I understand, you're saying today's uh, youth is more active in terms yeah, of the yeah, Generation X. Totally. Yeah. Gen, Gen Z is much more active. And I'll tell you why. Because Gen, my generation kind of didn't really, you know, we, we grew up before September the 11th. Yeah, me too. Like we, right? Yeah. And they grew up with terror on red alert, right? So they're hardwired with like, you know, a state of emergency. We kind of like, whoa, you know, we kind of like snoozed into it. It kind of, we got a little kick up the ass, but you know, we sort of were already hardwired with like peace. Yeah. You know, so our thing was like about, you know, how much can you take? Not how much can you give back? You know, and the, the new generation so, coming so through we're a very really, a really generation. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, the me generation, and I think the generation coming through right now, I have a lot of hope for them, and I have a lot of hope for this idea of punk positiv positivism, as I call it in the book, um, because they're the future, and the future doesn't have to be. You know, it's not written on the walls. No. It's not. You know, it can. You can alter. There can be a new narrative for that future, new languages, new images that, do, that, that will define our times. And it will come from this generation. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is we are the ones who invented the me, me, me. We are the brains of the me, me, me generation in this sort of way because we weren't... Who's we? Not you and me. Generation X, yeah. you know, our generation. Yeah. Because we were not politically active. I remember growing up, uh, going to college, uh, politics was not so much in the air at that, that time. No, we weren't like that. Yeah. I mean, Days to Confused was just, we set that, that, the reason that name is Days to Confused is because it was about accepting outsiders. And it was never a political magazine. Um, it was a magazine for people that didn't fit in, that felt like they weren't a part of the 80s style culture that ID in the face represented, which is this idea of kind of, you know, a certain uh, a beauty image, an idea of cool, an idea of kind of a status that was ascribed to those kind of codes. It was about a generation of kids that felt very alienated and very disenfranchised. And um, we became weirdly, um, we carried on going, even though we made every mistake, right? So we missed every deadline, we wrote crazy things that upset people. We did covers that like caused a lot of controversy. We pissed off advertisers. We kind of, you know, shouldn't really have ever survived. But because we got through all of that, we were like this weird example of hope. If people went, fuck, if they can do it, anyone can, can do, do it. it, right? So we just became this incredible symbol of like these complete fuck ups who partied all the time, made a magazine that was f terrible, but somehow kind of got better, you know, kind of grew up in public. We really were making it up as we went along. I mean, I remember like the, the three kind of success stories f for us was, you know, well, success stories is the wrong word, but three defining moments, let's say, in the history of that publication. One was when I was walking to my office down Newburgh Street. We had one, one little tiny room and one computer. I was walking down that, that street it was in 1995, and there were TV crews, big vans with like fucking satellite dishes and 
people with like big cameras on their shoulders. And I was going, who died at the end of my street? Right? I started walking down towards the, towards the door, put the key in the door. The guy puts a microphone under my nose. He goes, please, can you make a comment? A comment on what? He goes, a comment on, 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 on President um, Clinton's speech. I was like, whoa. Uh, I closed What's the door, speech? went inside, phoned a friend and said, what the fuck happened last night? <laughs> Bill Clinton had name-checked Days to Confuse as being responsible for heroin chic. And um, basically, we were uh, corrupting the moral of the nation's youth, and uh, we were responsible for everything that was fucking bad in the world, right? And because of that, every single kid in England and a lot of other places in the world wanted a copy, straight away, immediately. And of course, fucking out. raided all the stores, we printed more copies, and it was like, bam! We just wow. like went to the next level. So. Bad publicity, especially when it comes from the authority, you know what I mean, especially when it comes from the establishment, is really fucking good, good publicity for us. And of course, you know, we're not responsible for the drug problem. We're not going to solve the drug war. And um, what we were doing was we were really reflecting a kind of cultural moment in time with photographers like Corinne Day and David Sims, who were really photographing what was a kind of a reaction to glamorous fashion with the idea of street casting, photographing their friends, creating narrative stories about the reality of, of life. And they were, take, they were borrowing from a tradition that was coming from Larry Clark, that was coming from Nan Golding, that was coming from the, this art photography um, influence from which way predated us, but it was the it was it was it was the thing, and it was part of what was happening in grunge, and it was this kind of hell. So it was a very it was organic. Uh, it was just it was just reflecting the energy of what was happening I, I, that was real in 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 terms of in terms of you know a new kind of subcultural way of of exploring fashion and and the conversation that was happening in photography. Um, and we got slammed for it. And, um, and then we did other kind of, a couple of other kind of defining things was, I think, is Amy Mullins in the, in the, in the audience? Is she here? Because she was, she's I saw her, her last night. Okay, she's on her way. Yeah. Um, this, this is an amazing moment. I mean, uh, uh, Alexander McQueen guest edited an issue of Days and Confused called Fashionable. And um, Nick Knight shot, uh, did, did the shoe. And um, they spent six months casting um, a group of disabled um, individuals for a fashion story, which was could have gone really, really fucking wrong. Um, and I remember speaking to Lee, and he fell in love with this girl, Amy Mullins, and he he said to me, "She is incredible." He's seen a picture of her, and she had she had a, a, a Paralympic uh, sprinter, and she had um, the twin blades, um, and he'd seen a picture of her. And then he called her, and he spent a long time, several nights, speaking to her. And he said, she's the most incredible person I've ever spoken to. She's just so full of, of, of hope and positivity. She is you know, not defined by her, um, you know, by her, um, you know, by, by, by her disability. And he, he, he really fell in love with her. So he convinced me to do a cover, and he did, we did the issue around it. And it was, it was, you know, the press from that issue, the... Is still the most one of the most requested back back issues back of issues of the magazine, and that sort of defined a, a new era for us as well, which was about positive social storytelling and through fashion. And what was number three defining moment? Um, things like you know David Bowie doing a cover. Things like um, there's many. There's many. Yeah. 
uh, to lighten up a little bit. We started from uh, today. Yeah, we, and we, you got in me really yeah, heavy. Yeah, really yeah. Like, you came right down, <laughs> like down. I Bring never it knew. Up. I never knew you were so political, but you know. It's always <laughs> the thing is, I'm sort of. I can be anything you want me to be, which is a bit weird too. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> I can be a joker, I can be like a heavy... Be, you know. be more uh, sentimental and start from the beginning because it's also very interesting how you, uh, you went to the publishing school of London and how you met your uh, future, you met your future partner uh, Rankin there and how did it all happen? I mean, did you want to start a magazine or how did you end up, uh, you guys meeting and starting a magazine together? When I was 12 years old, I bought a copy of Interview magazine and it blew my fucking mind because I was sitting at home in Ramsgate, which is a little seaside town. I was opening up this magazine and I was teleported to downtown New York and I was hanging out in Andy Warhol's factory. And as a 12-year-old straight boy, hanging out <laughs> in Andy Warhol's factory, hanging out in Andy Warhol's factory in downtown New York, was fucking wild. And so through the pages of a magazine, I changed my sense of, of my reality and my experiences and, and my influences. And I would read incredible writing by, um, you know, J.G. Ballard or by Ingrid Cixi or by, um, uh, you know, see incredible photographs by amazing photographers. And it, it just expanded my horizon. So I saw the power of media. I saw the power of youth culture media. Um, I was always um, subscribing to fanzines, very into fanzine culture, and then became very into the kind of history of, of, of kind of counterculture magazines, Oz and IT and early issues of Rolling Stone and early issues of Playboy. And, you know, so when I met Rankin, it was really just, you know, we did the student magazine for the London College of Printing. The lecturers, you, you know, we did, we did magazines, so it was for Central St. Martins, and all the kind of collective art colleges, and it was brilliant. And I met Katie Grand, um, and she became the fashion director. And so many people made that magazine what it is. I mean, it really wasn't down to me. I was like a kid. I was 18 years old. And, and what was your first ever interview? It was a group of people with very, very strong personalities who were all, you know, who were all the same age, who all knew nobody, who were all just interested in photography, journalism, graphic design, and getting some. And so what happened is it became like, a, it became like our version of Andy Warhol's factory, right? Yeah. Which meant that we were running club nights. We had this office space. It became a kind of a network of production. It allowed people that couldn't get stuff made or didn't know how to get stuff made to connect, talk about ideas of how to get stuff made. I remember Sam Taylor Wood coming into the office and saying, I want to take 360-degree photographs. How do I do that? Right? Phil Pointer, the photography director at the time, was a team of five of us, said, oh, I'll help you do that. Let's set it up. Five, I think 10 years later, a decade later, I was in Seoul in the Contemporary Art Museum, and I saw that image that she took next to a fucking Basquiat with a wow. group of school kids looking at it. And it was amazing, actually. It was like a panoramic, one of her 12-second panoramic pieces with most of my staff naked, well, most of us naked in it, apart from me, I got out of it. <laughs> Nick Cave on a typewriter in the back. Naked. Katie Grand naked. Wow. Yeah, it's a cool picture, actually. Wow. Yeah. But we were just having fun, and what happened was it kind of became, the magazine became like the magazine of that 
group of people's actions. So only about 10% of what we were ever doing ended up in print. The rest of it ended up in exhibitions or projects or so the catwalk. Most of it never got printed. Yeah. But it got documented. Yeah. And it I still remember, exists. I remember Channel 4 came to me and said, we want, uh, one of the things we did really early on was a TV hijack. So I got hold of this tra TV transmitter, you know, like the technology yeah. to do pirate TV. And we did a TV jam over the live TV station in, in, in London. And that got the name out of Dazed. It was pretty risky. In what sense? Because you could have got arrested for it. Yeah. And sent away under terrorism charges for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> As an enemy of the state. But it was fun. And <clears throat> I probably wouldn't do it today. Why? It's more riskier. I've got more to lose. <laughs> and then... Uh, after Days and Confused, you went on to uh, start another magazine, and then Another Man, and Nowness, and your mad agency. Can you tell us a little bit what's next, what's going to happen in the next 25 years? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really start them. I would just, you know, helped birth them because they needed to happen. So Days to Confused was... We've been doing it for 10 years. The generation that started it got older. A new generation wanted to come through. And I didn't want the magazine to get old. So we started another magazine for everyone to kind of graduate to. That was the reality of it. And then another magazine started for men and women. And my men's team that were like doing a lot of the kind of, you know, it was really difficult balancing those, uh, those, two, uh, those, two, those two ideas. So we ended up launching another man. So we could have two separate universes. And can you tell us a bit about Nowness, how the idea came up? And you know, I just saw a lot of really great experimentation in film and video. I mean, I've been working in 2D for a really long time, so you know, 2D has its limitations, as we all know, and I wanted to go to the third dimension. And now, hopefully, we can also talk in a bit about going to the fourth dimension and get yeah. on this like Sylvia Fendi theme yeah. for, the, for, for, the, for, for our conversation. But yeah, I wanted to go into 3D, and so many people around me were just making amazing short-form experiments you know, um, short documentary pieces. There was so much quality and there was nowhere to put it. There was nowhere to kind of like, I wanted to curate a space for that. And that's how Nowness came along. It's a good name, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like a... This guy, this amazing artist, Rashid Johnson, came up with the name. He's so brilliant. Um, we were sitting down and I, and, and I had no fucking name and I had one week. Like, at what, uh, I think I had one day to come up with a name. Like we'd taken it so, so far. We had no fucking name. And... So I decided, how are we going to come up with a name for something that we don't have a name for? And we've been doing the typical thing of like a group of people sitting around an office kind of writing on bits of paper, and it just wasn't working. So what I did is I was in New York, and a friend of mine, Rassi, who you know yep. at Milk Studios, has this place called The Whiskey Bar, right? So I said, Rassi, can I borrow your whiskey bar? He goes, yeah, no problem. I said, I'm going to bring 10 to 12 people to your whiskey bar. So I did a research, and I invited artists and writers who use language and I said to them look I'm going to pay you each in alcohol and cash <laughs> right and we're going to have a naming salon right and we're just going to shoot the fucking breeze and whatever comes out we're going to record it and I know we're going to get a name out of that Right, so again, what I was doing was like the post-symbolic interview I was coming up with a new rule of the game a way to kind of create an outcome that was not going to be 
fake, but was going to produce something. And this guy, Rashid Johnson, started talking about, oh, yeah, I went to see my shrink today. I was like, tell me about it. He goes, okay, I went to see my shrink today. And he explained the concept of nowness to me. And I said, I said what, what is it? And he goes, well, he said, when I do my hair in the mirror in the morning and take a visual picture of myself, visual, mental picture of mm -hmm. myself doing my hair, and then I go out for the rest of my day, I go and catch a taxi and I go and have my lunch, and my hair is blowing all over the place and doing its thing, I still have the visual image of how my hair looked when it was in the mirror carried through my day. I and said, that's called nowness? I said, wow, that's deep. And he said, <laughs> he said, he said not, not really. It's not that deep. It's just the way it is, bro. I was like, hmm. He said, what? I said, what do you call it? He goes, I call that a perpetual moment. That's interesting, a perpetual moment, a moment that lasts. Because we, you know, we live in a culture of fleeting moments. Yeah. Moments just like bullets. Experiences are like bullets, yeah. right? They're pinging past us all day long, and we're wearing heavy armor, usually cynicism. The armor of cynicism. Oh, I've seen that, been there, done it, fuck that, that shit, no good. Oh, you know, that's the kind of general kind of attitude, right? So with incredible experiences zinging past us all day long as we're going fast forward like that through culture. No wonder we all die so unhappy. Sad, isn't it, really? But anyway, so he said the perpetual moment. I said, wow, that's a beautiful thing. He goes, yeah, my therapist called it now-ness. I went, all right, session's over. Just get drunk, guys. We got the name. <laughs> That's a very good name. <clears throat> I think we have to sum it up a bit because uh, there are some questions from the audience. We get very, very political. Uh, <clears throat> you really start so heavy, Alf, and I love it's you. It's my fault, yeah, yeah. No, but <laughs> we're in a political place and we're in political <laughs> times and, you know, I don't blame you. Uh... Okay, somewhere in the back, can we pass the mic? Uh, on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, Jefferson. Um, so I saw you on Daniel Arsham's Snapchat recently, going to the NASA headquarters, and it all looks very intriguing. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the project going on there. All right, I'll tell you a little bit about that project, and then I'm going to stop, and anybody that wants to ask me questions can come and see me in the little room back there, because... Um, then you get to see me one-on-one -on -one and ask me questions myself and everyone can have a break. But um, this project um, at NASA, Daniel Arsham invited me to go to a place called um, JPL, which is Jet Propulsion Laboratories in Pasadena. And it's a NASA institute and they make spacecraft there. They really do. They build rockets and they send them out into deep, deep space. And I was fucking blown away. And I found out that it's the 40th anniversary next year of a project called... Well, it's the 40th anniversary of one of the most successful NASA missions of all time, which was called Voyager. Voyager is a beautiful spacecraft, and it launched in 1977, and it is now the furthest hand of humanity. It is in interstellar space. Imagine that. And on it, it contains a golden disk, a copper oxide disk built to last three million years. On that disc, which was created by Carl Sagan and his team, is a time capsule of Earth culture. 
which contains 118 images and five hours of music, and messages of hope. Messages of hope to the future, and messages of hope for contact with an extraterrestrial beings, right? Because as he said, this universe is way too big to give up on the idea that we might be alone. Anyway, this spacecraft took an incredible image of Earth called the pale blue dot, which was in about 19, in the mid-80s, it took this photograph, it turned its cameras around. It went on to document Neptune, Mars, Pluto, all the kind of outer planets before it left, and it did incredible things. It discovered that there was water on Europa and all this kind of stuff. But it took this incredible image of our planet, which is called the pale blue dot, which shows how incredibly small we are in the Milky Way. It shows, as Carl Sagan described, Earth as a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. That's how it looked in the picture, the pale blue dot. And it changed the consciousness of the climate um, movement, the climate revolution movement at the time, because it showed our oneness and it showed our fragility. And it showed how borders dissolve and how we're in this spaceship planet Earth. So it was an incredible image. So this kind of project I became fascinated with and what it what it symbolized for me was a kind of a message of hope for the future, but it symbolized the idea of technology and art coming together, um, about science, um, technology and art coming together, and it was for me a time capsule is kind of like a magazine. It's a container of information which in this sense was an extremely long duration, with an extremely long duration, right? Um, so what I thought was, what would be a 21st century update to this 20th century time capsule, which obviously was sent up at a time when the world was very analog, and also where we had a lot less information and knowledge about how we, how we live. So NASA allowed me to invite a group of artists and scientists, got to bring a group of artists with Hans-Ulrich de Brick a Bricht um, um, curated, Daniel Arsham, me, Hans-Ulrich de Brist, and a bunch of other artists visited NASA, met with some scientists to discuss the idea around what a 21st century time capsule might look like, might contain, how it might behave, and how it might be sent up into space for, um, a as a message of hope for the future. And um, it's an ongoing project can't tell you more than that. It's top secret. <laughs> I've told you too much already. <laughs> um, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, I'm so glad we did science fiction at the end. That was the only thing we didn't touch. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. I learned a lot. It's totally fucking sci-fi. Yeah. See, I, I always wanted to be the magazine, the fir you know, the first real magazine in space. <laughs> Arthur C. <laughs> Clarke. <laughs> Okay, thank you. The final frontier. The final, the frontier. final frontier. frontier. All right. Jefferson, thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you for coming.